Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. This is a very special edition of the programme exploring the fascinating intersection of art and technology. Today we're experiencing an incredible acceleration in the use of digital technologies within the arts, not just as a tool to enable access to art, but to create explosive possibilities as a medium in itself and for sharing opportunities for audiences. From the now more familiar online viewing rooms to online performances to R&D, the applications of technology in the arts are wide-ranging and increasingly influential in the development of the contemporary art landscape. In this programme, we'll explore the cultural impact of new digital technologies in the arts and how they've helped artists and institutions alike respond to today's changing environment. Our conversation will include experts in their fields who'll share two examples of projects where technology served as tool to expand the availability of art to broader audiences and where it became the core component of artistic manifestation. Kay Watson is Head of Arts Technologies at Serpentine. Kay's a researcher, producer and curator working with art and advanced technologies, photography and feminist curatorial and institutional histories of art. Artist Worlds is a series of commissions and events that support artistic practices that engage with simulated realities, immersive storytelling and virtual world building that invites audiences into these worlds to explore and offer insights into these advancing technologies and associated practices, processes and ideas. In February, UBS and Serpentine co-presented a live conversation with the artist Jakob Kuxter-Stiensen, whose simulated realities explore the fragility of our environment and ecosystems at risk. I'm delighted to say Kay Watson joins me now. Kay, welcome to the programme. Let's talk about the potential of technology and the digital in art, and perhaps we can look through the prism of Jakob Kuxter-Stiensen's work, which develops within an interesting intersection between art and technology. What, as you see it, is the potential of the integration of, of CGI, of gaming technologies in the arts? What we're looking at is that there are new ways for artists to work. And Jakob is a really brilliant example of an artist finding new new ways of existing in the art world, mm. if you like. So he's he's creating these really complex artworks and they've been getting more and more complex as time goes on, as he develops his skills, as he develops not just in like tech development and his knowledge of what game technologies can do, but it's also around how you work with other people and how you collaborate. So I think what's really interesting about Jakob is that he has always collaborated with lots of other people from different fields. So he'll work with a, with scientists, he'll work with groups of different kinds of tech developers. He'll work with a sound artist. And all of that is around sort of building this sort of multidisciplinary collaborative teams to work on these increasingly more complex projects. And I think that also is interesting for arts institutions as well. And this is something that we've, you know, been trying to look at for a very long time, which is what are these sort of new infrastructures that we can build, not just in terms of institutionally, but in order to support artists to to work in this way, but also for the cultural sector to have an impact on the way that those technologies developed, or develop, I should say, because I think that's important, that the public cultural sector has a role in the way that technologies evolve. Mm. And I think that we can only really have that impact by thinking about or trying to develop or work together on new kinds of infrastructures. 
Do some of the things you've mentioned, Kay, promise to have a democratising effect on art, whether we're talking about creators or viewers? How will these processes shape the future of arts practice, given that these new CGI and game engine technologies, the collaborative work, the multidisciplinary approach during the process that you just mentioned, how relevant are they to a more democratic way to experience and to access art? I have a couple of different views on that and maybe they're contradictory views. I think there is an issue that, particularly talking about digital strategies in the past, that that has become like a, that has meant accessibility. And I think that we know that something being digital does not mean necessarily mean that that means it's more accessible. But on the other hand, the tools that are coming out of the games industry, and I think game engines are a, a really very, very important example of this, which are these development environments which you can do a, a number of different things and you can plug in lots of different other kinds of software to create these virtual spaces and environments and worlds. The other thing about that is that those those engines are generally free to access because of the way that companies such as Unity and Unreal have developed these sort of flexible licensing agreements. So it is possible to access these what are quite, you know, complex <laughs> tools to develop these kinds of worlds and spaces. So I do think that's really interesting. But not only that, there's like things like free tutorials online so you can learn about how to do these kinds of things as well as the publishing platforms as well that come with it so you have steam and all the other platforms so there are these accessible tools like relatively accessible tools for building these kinds of projects and spaces as well as the kind of distribution mechanisms that enable you to basically go direct to audiences and also in that i mean we've been looking at We've been looking at adjacent fields to the to the art sector for our next report, Future Art Ecosystems, to see how these sort of fields are supporting artistic experimentation. And I think it's interesting when you look at the games industry and particularly at the indie games industry, like any industry, it's not perfect, but it has these mechanisms that support sort of the development of these kinds of works. And that is not just... It's about the whole sort of infrastructure and way of working. And that also includes the fact that you have Discord and you have Twitch that enables you to have these conversations with your, with your community and with your, with your audience, which I think is also really valuable. Let me ask you, Kay, about how technology relates to nature in artist worlds, specifically this big series of commissions and events. How can work like this contribute to today's conversations around the environment. Talk to us perhaps about some of the complexities, if you like, of this meeting point between arts, technology and the environment. It is highly complex, but it's deeply interesting what happens there. It is very interesting and it's definitely complex because in as much as, you know, what I said before about accessibility, that digital meaning accessibility, digital does not mean it has no footprint, <laughs> you know, it has no carbon footprint. And I think that it's important to remember that technology is something that has material. And so we, as part of our most recent report, we have been interviewing um, lots of different people from across art, tech, science, gaming. Elenda Chang is an academic looking at the relationship between games and ecology. 
basically. But and what she says and what she said in our interview is like, you don't notice infrastructure until it breaks. And I think that that is also quite apt <laughs> when we're talking about technology, because we're not always thinking about its like material properties and the fact that it does have an impact on the environment and on the world around us. And I'm always reminded of a brilliant quote by Ursula Le Guin, which is like, technology is the active human interface with the material world. And I think that that is a brilliant description of of the role of what technology is doing. But then to sort of segue back to Jakob... Now, Jakob's a really interesting artist in the way that, you know, he is known for this work, working with technology. But to him, it's very much the tool to be able to talk about the environment and to be able to talk about ecologies. And also sometimes what he's saying or what the work is doing is it's sort of a little bit of a warning, I would say, in that, you know, people call him the digital gardener. I would call him more of an archivist myself. But... um, (laughs) He spends this enormous amount of time in specific environments, in landscapes, recording them, getting to know them, talking with experts in those in the field. So if it's about like he's currently doing some work on a swamp. So if there's like a specific part of the ecosystem, he will spend time with an expert in in that area, getting to understand like its functionality. But then what he's also doing is is recording that and and creating these digital textures with which he builds these worlds. And then there's sort of this sort of something on the side, which is like, what if there is a point where the only way that you're accessing or exploring the natural world is through these sort of recordings of the natural world? That is the kind of slight warning on on the side as well. Something else that Jakob is... Um, something we've been talking about for a long time because we've we've collaborated with him on three projects now which have been a great experience is this idea of slow media which is that technology could also potentially be something that is used to foster attention to the world around you rather than distraction and so thinking about like you know, heads up experiences, you know, with the, with mobile. And, and this is why when we worked with him on The Deep Listener, his focus was very much, it's an audio-visual work, but thinking about the role of the audio in these immersive storytelling experiences is, is a really important part of that. So I think this idea of a slow media is a very interesting one when it comes to, like, thinking about the world around you, not just the device. And obviously... It's also important to remember that these devices are made of certain materials that need to be extracted from, uh, and and that also is is uh, there's a, a huge legacy of that kind of those kinds of extractive processes. What about if we look at the artists specifically, not Jakob, but just artists more broadly? What are the benefits as you see it to these technologies, these tools, and this conversation, this interest in this space, what else does that change? Does it change market dynamics? Does it change does it change the nature of the relationship with their with their audience? And there's lots of other themes we talk about artist representation, again, access, sustainability, some of these other things. Does this mean that artists have a huge opportunity in front of them? Perhaps even artists who have never dabbled in these kinds of technologies or or maybe feel like 
it's alien to them. What's the potential for, for, for the artists in terms of how they can use this, harness these and take advantage of them in the future? If we think about the cultural institution as, as something, as a, an entity that has a number of different sort of stakeholder groups who are involved in the development of the work that they do, and artists are a, such an important part of that, I think it's vital for us to sort of create the sort of frameworks by which artists can engage with those technologies if they have no experience of them. But that's that's an aside, really, to, to your question. I do think there's some really interesting possibilities in terms of how you interact with with audiences and, and with your community that is happening through some of these technologies, by which I'm saying they're like this capability to self-publish, to have a Twitch channel, to have Discord servers where you're communicating directly with with people who are interacting with your work and creating this like feedback loop in in the way that sort of the creative process takes place. But I do think there is a need for the support structures for artists, particularly when it comes to things like intellectual property and how those things are going to really shift. And we're seeing that through you know, the explosion of NFTs and those platforms is really like creating a, a sort of, yeah, those structures for artists. I think that's really important. But there is a huge amount of potential, particularly now, you know, something that we're really interested in is like this emergence or re-emergence, I should say, of the metaverse, of which game technologies is a huge, you know, factor in, you know, the game industry has been basically prototyping this for decades. But right now what we're seeing is particularly after, or not after because we're obviously still in it, particularly during the pandemic and the way that we are sort of been slightly reconfiguring our relationship to the digital, if you like, and seeing the, uh, how sort of successful the video games industry has been during the pandemic as well alongside other developments which are like NFTs and blockchain and this kind of maturing or at least of of certain technologies that represent this future of the internet, basically. It's really interesting what you say about these crazy last 18 months. I mean, that has served, if nothing else, to accelerate. I mean, these trends were there. There's a lot of these kind of broader secular pieces about the advances in data and digital. Presumably, that's, in a sense, made these conversations easier to have. They've become essential. Probably artists, I imagine, and and other stakeholders, as you've described, are probably coming to you now more than ever before and saying, well, hang on, we really need to to explore this and, and immerse ourselves in it. Does that mean that's changed what's in your in-tray or what the objectives are for the next six months, 12 months, 18 months? Or does it just mean that you can plough on with greater confidence because it's kind of validated a lot of the things you've been talking about for the preceding year, two years, three years, That is an excellent question. And actually is a mixture of both. So what we're working on at the moment is we are releasing a report called Future Ecosystems Are in the Metaverse on the 6th of July. And... This is looking at exactly this sort of emergent field. Again, not new, but (laughs) shifting, evolving and shifting. It's definitely true that the pandemic and the shifts and evolution of the way that we need to work has sort of encouraged us to sort of 
consolidate our efforts and to focus in on certain areas. And I think that through the work that we've been doing for future ecosystems on on the metaverse and, and really sort of taking a look at taking stock of what's been taking place, not just in art, but also in adjacent fields. So looking at architecture, looking at the games industry, looking at film and seeing how those infrastructures have have shifted, not in the last 18 months, we're talking about in the last 10, 20, 30 years. (laughs) And understanding that there is a certain amount of like infrastructural work to be done to enable us to be able to continue to have an impact in this area. I'm personally extremely interested in this re-emergence of the metaverse and the way that how this is going to shift the way that the internet functions, obviously, that's on a really basic level, but also the way that other technologies or other sort of ideas are coming together. So this is sort of the, the, the bringing together of video games and blockchain, um, what that means for different forms of governance, what that means for different forms of experience, what that means for different kinds of users in the sort of broader cultural sphere. So I think... It's definitely, I would say that it's definitely created a sense of urgency to think about what role the cultural sector can play in, in how, these, how this is developing. Because it is really, it feels to me, it's really picking up speed. There, there is this like real drive in the, in the tech industry around what this metaverse sort of can be and I mean obviously the metaverse is a highly problematic term and um, I could call it the spatial web or spatial computing or the immersive internet or d-web or all of these things but I think that to me this is something that we really should be considering and because I work in the art field I really think that artists and I mean that in the broadest sense should have a should have a role and should have a stake in how these develop. Kay Watson. Candidate Gertler is co-director of Outset Contemporary Art Fund. For more than a decade, Candidate served as executive member of the Tate International Council. Outset Contemporary Art Fund and Art Science Collective Visuological have partnered to launch The Vov, a new virtual arts ecosystem which launched back in April of this year with an exciting 10-week programme of exhibitions and events. For its inaugural season, 15 of the UK's leading museums and galleries joined forces on one centralised open access platform. I'm happy to say Candida Gertler joins me now. Candida, welcome to the show. The Vov, it's a new initiative that provides people from all around the world with access to art. Can you introduce the project to us first of all? Tell us about the inspiration behind it. Absolutely. Outset Contemporary Art Fund, together with Art Science Collective Physiological, which we can talk a little more about a bit later maybe, wanted to support institutions in these really challenging times during COVID and really far beyond by giving the widest possible audiences an opportunity to explore some of the best exhibitions from our cultural archives, in a virtual environment, which was the only way you could actually explore and and see 
works of art during these times. Um, but we had understood far before that there has to be a shift to the digital, also in the art world, which was far behind the movie world and the music world. So we decided to develop extended reality galleries that are unique to each arts organization, which are 15 of them joining forces, um, so that these beautiful exhibitions that they revived from their archives were able to be experienced on a desktop or a mobile phone. In this first season, we brought together 15 of the leading public arts institutions in the UK. And what's wonderful about the initiative is that each exhibition is free to experience. And we also have an amazing program of collateral material that really is embracing each exhibition so that when as a viewer you are sitting at home and watching, um, you can go farther deep into anything that has to do with the artist, the exhibition spaces that you are maybe seeing even for the first time. And the ultimate goal was really to collect as many funds as possible to support the participating institutions. All funds raised on a donation basis would at the end and will at the end of the season one, which ends mid-July, be distributed in equal manner to each participating institutions with the hope that this model will grow and that microphilanthropy will be able to support institutions far into the future. What's the theme then, Candida? What are some highlights of the season one programme? What have you learned, I guess, about the potential of the platform? So when we approached the 15, some of the 15 leading institutions in the UK, you can imagine the only really question we had to them was, what would you like to show on the VOV? Um, we gave them absolute freedom within the realm of the possible, uh, because some of the exhibits would have been too intricate, maybe, with the technology that is already available to render. But within those technological boundaries, we gave them absolute carte blanche. And I have to say that the physiological team and the outset team worked tirelessly together with our tech host, which is Vortic, to absolutely satisfy the very high standards of these institutions. There was no curatorial theme, there was no, and, and it actually lives of the variety and diversity of artists, genders, backgrounds, some are solo exhibitions with just one um, sculpture in uh, Yorkshire Sculpture Park in uh, the outdoors and others have brought together something like seven or eight female artists who are all talking about uh, the body in the showroom. Yeah, so tell us a bit then about some of the challenges, I guess, here, as well as the opportunities of this, uh, you know, translation, I guess, is that the right word, of, of exhibitions into this digital realm? Because there's so much complexity, there's so much hype indeed around things like extended reality. And I'm just interested in what the actual mechanics of that are when you're the person tasked with with, with making that, that, that transition. What does that process, what's that process been like and what is it like? I'm so glad you're asking this question because I have to say before we started Evolve, I always say I lived in a kind of science fiction, like, you know, illusion. I thought, you know, you just go and choose the works of art and then you just send some file to our tech team and there we are, the exhibition comes to life. But it was absolutely not so. One has this imagination that 
everything is possible because that's how we would like it to be. What really happens is that there are very strict boundaries and real challenges. And even when working towards the specifications that the technological firm Vortic were giving us, very often when we then press the render button, it didn't show as we expected it to show. So very often the poor physiological team and outset team were working over the weekend, day and night, sometimes really up to four o'clock in the morning with the tech team of Vortec to have the exhibition ready for Monday morning. And I have to say, it's been an incredible learning curve and also really challenging and a lot of sleepless nights, but it was so worth it because I feel that the exhibitions look fantastic. And I think the real test here is that all the institutional curators and directors are thrilled as well as the artists with what has been created. Do you see and have you seen from the experiences you've described to us how technology could support the whole world of the arts even more more broadly? If we think of things that demand innovative solutions, access, artist representation, sustainability, of course, very much a watchword. Have you seen evidence now in the past months that technology can offer solutions even to some of those problems which have seemed intractable so far? Absolutely. I'm a big believer that um, what we have created and in general technology is a real force for good, although it has its challenges and maybe also its kind of pitfalls. But in general, the democratization that is happening through what we have created and other people have put online is tremendous. Um, there are a lot of people who are challenged, uh, be it because of their abilities, be it because of their uh, financial situation that are not uh, able to visit the institutions. And even if the institutions like in the UK are for free, it still requires you coming down to London. And it is sometimes for many people an unsurmountable obstacle. On the other side, also for institutions that are placed in smaller cities and towns, they often really crave for the audiences that are by the hundreds of thousands and millions really uh, flocking to the likes of the Tate or the Hayward Gallery. And, and, and sometimes these little exhibition spaces or even big exhibition spaces, which are more in the regional areas, have fantastic exhibitions, world-class artists who are showing there with very, very ambitious outreach programs. And now through the digital realm, we are able to share these. And that means also that people on the other side of the world can actually enjoy what is being created in the UK or anywhere else. And just to add to this, the Valve, hopefully in the next seasons, will absolutely aim to showcase international institutions so that we in the UK could enjoy institutional exhibitions from Australia, vice versa, from all continents, and really create this diversity that we're talking about so much, but sometimes really still is in its infancy of development because there are geographical and also ecological challenges that make travel sometimes almost unethical. To this broader point about the reopening that we're already seeing, and you spoke actually, Candida, right at the start about the sort of the inevitability of the, the growth of technology and how that would impact, disrupt, open up the world of art more broadly. Let me ask you about that inevitability of that process. Do you think that the future 
the future kind of art landscape, if you like, is necessarily a hybrid then of the physical and the virtual. Is, is that just the way things are inexorably headed? I think we all are living this already. And I think um, the term of the digital era has been really kind of created, especially during the last year and a half. I think everybody who is even visiting a museum will probably use their uh, mobile phone or their computer or to gain information even about opening times, about how to get there, about information about the artist. So even before even watching and seeing art online was possible, uh, we were already using these, these technologies that were available to us to a great extent. I absolutely believe that this is not to go away. I think this will be developed and not only as a facilitator to view what is already there and has already been created in the physical world. I think that artists more and more are embracing the digital even as a a platform for creating works of art. And I think it's already exploded and I think the future will really, really see much more of that happening so that some works of art might even be best seen during times of enabling everything on the platform and on the tablet. Canada Gertler, can you tell us more about the unique funding model for the VOV? And I wonder, does the art world need to reevaluate its funding models more generally? And is this perhaps a step towards a new innovative type of philanthropy, micro-philanthropy, I think you referred to it as before? Absolutely. I think you're really touching something that's very, very actual, because if you look even what the latest news on the football industry, with some players actually removing certain items from their desks while they were interviewed, uh, refusing to uh, recognize certain brands as the ones they want to stand for. Um, We as a society, I have to say, um, have made certain decisions and certain sources for funding are not any more acceptable to many people because they just don't touch everybody's ethos. Uh, Whilst before we maybe didn't ask so many questions or we had maybe less information about uh, the origin of the funding or even the production way of which companies are producing the items that are leading to their ability to fund the arts. We as a society are rejecting a lot because it just doesn't suit everybody. Therefore, a lot of the sources have dried up. We know from the past that um, fossil fuel uh, sponsors have been rejected. Certain pharmaceutical uh, companies have been rejected. So the funding arena is getting smaller and smaller. Therefore, also democratizing the funding models is to me the only way forward if we want a really well-functional and really resilient art world. Look at the crisis that we have just gone through. If there's a subscription model, for example, like with the on-demand film industry or on-demand music industry, the crisis, if something happens to the businesses and so on and so on, is not really that important because hundreds of thousands, millions of people are paying their subscriptions or are making donations. I also feel that a lot of the patronage model that to me is going back to Machiavellian times almost, is always celebrating those who have a lot of money to give away. And it's a very noble cause. And I know that this is really fueling the arts industry and so many other leisure industries and what makes life really livable. 
Uh, but if we could shift this to the many, it becomes more resilient. And I think everyone feels part of a bigger picture. So giving your 10 pounds or one pound makes you feel I have supported this big institution. It becomes part of what I own, part of what I'm part of. And it, I think, creates a completely different relationship between the arts institution or if you feel, well, somebody else has built this and this is somebody else's. And we're talking about national collections. We're talking about national heritage. And I think this shift to the democratization of funding is very, very important. Let's look a little bit further ahead, Candida. Perhaps just finally, we did talk about future plans and ambitions. You've already mentioned a couple of things. Give us a bit more, put, put some more flesh on those bones, if you, if you will. Is there any insight into what the future plans and ambitions are for the VOV for future seasons? And I guess more broadly, how much more impact there is still to make in this digital realm? I really believe we have only just started our journey and we have made the first baby steps towards the potential that the WAF can actually reach when fully developed. Uh, first of all, as you know, uh, we have worked with 15 UK institutions, but the ambition is really to be a platform for international organizations and public institutions all over the world. So season two will hopefully see a much more international array of institutions showing uh, their works and their artists and showcasing uh, beautiful galleries. Um, we're also evaluating at the moment everything that we have learned and are learning still in the last few weeks of the season one on the Vov. The Vov will not go dark. We will continue featuring interesting content um, even between season one and season two, which hopefully will happen sometimes at the end of the year. And we absolutely are listening also. We, we've put out a lot of surveys. Uh, we want everybody's opinion. Uh, we are encouraging people to write to us and to answer all the surveys. And we want to be responsive. We want to um, really create something that people want. Uh, we can imagine it to a certain degree. But I think that the, we have touched on something that the artists, the institutions and the public are really very happy with. And the idea is really to perfect it, to grow and to really, as I said, raise as much money for the institutions and the arts as possible. So we're really counting on the generosity of people now making donations and hopefully one day transitioning to a subscription model, which would be the ideal scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And if people are, are really struck by what you've had to say, uh, Canada, what should they do? Give us a, a call to action. Where do they head? Um, how do they get involved? How do they support these kind of initiatives or just simply find out more? Yes, go to devolve.art and all the information is there. I think our website is incredibly accessible and really uh, takes you where you want to go. There's a lot of on-demand content, so there's no more such a thing as, oh, I've missed this one or I've missed that talk. There are some incredibly interesting and insightful tours of, of the galleries by the directors of the institution, the creators and the curators, uh, the artists' interviews, uh, things that, coming back to that idea of the patronage, are often only reserved for those who are in very privileged groups. So we've opened up sort of this incredible experience when you hear the artists speak about their works of art. Um, the institutions were also so 
generous to give us so much collateral, interesting content. So once on the Volve, there are lots of donate buttons, um, which I think are very attractive. It's a kind of pulsating heart. And I hope that everybody will really engage with us, answer our questionnaires, which are on social media. We're everywhere, all the social media outlets and on our website. Canada Gutler. As we've discussed today, technology can enable access to art when it cannot currently be physically experienced. Alongside many other public art institutions and spaces, the UBS Art Gallery in New York has launched a virtual exhibition, The Art of One's Own Era, featuring more than 30 works from the UBS Art Collection that explore its unique heritage. The exhibition includes core works from the former Payne Webber collection, which were integrated throughout the firm's history of mergers and acquisitions and became an important part of today's UBS art collection. These works present a time capsule revealing a who's who of artists of the downtown New York art scene. They recall a period when it was possible to have an overview of the art market, a time when the business of collecting contemporary art was as straightforward as regular Saturday afternoon trips to the galleries and artist studios in Soho. You can explore the exhibition at ubs.com forward slash art until the 6th of September. And that brings us to the end of this very special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can discover more about UBS's passion for and support for the arts. Just head to ubs.com forward slash art. Do watch out for the report that Kay Watson was discussing. You can read more about that at futureartecosystems.org. The report is published on the 6th of July. And as Canada Gertler mentioned, you can support the VOV at thevov.art. And as ever, you can listen again and find out more about this programme at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.